What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Indirect Message. I'm Lacey Green. In the sweet, cozy, and chaotic world of sex ed, there are a few major icons who've been broadcasting to the masses for decades. Among the ones that I grew up with were Dr. Ruth, of course, who I discovered waving dildos around on late-night television. Welcome to Good Sex with Dr. Ruth Westheim. And who could forget Sue Johansson with her frank and hilarious TV show, Talk Sex with Sue. Hello, and welcome to Talk Sex. My question is that my boyfriend is pretty well endowed. Yes. And he loves oral sex. My problem is I can't seem to go down deep enough for him. I was saying, don't think that you have to take the whole penis into your mouth. And then there's Dr. Drew Pinsky who I eagerly listened to as a teenager late at night after discovering Loveline on the radio. I distinctly remember burying myself and my radio under a pile of blankets and pillows so that my parents wouldn't hear me listening to it. First of all, I'm just an interpreter, so I'm going to be speaking for Janelle right now, okay? Okay. Hi, so I'm Jeff. And I'm afraid that the noises that are made during sex are kind of weird. And I, but I can't hear them, so I don't understand if maybe that's like a turnoff. So I don't know if I should mm. hold back. Don't hold um, back. Never hold back. My personal opinion is that if a guy's into you, uh, the, the way guys think, if a guy's into you, it doesn't matter what noises you're making. That, okay. Dr. Drew? I, I agree. Either that or they really like it. Roxana, do you think there's a chance we can get Janelle to, to give us a sample? Joseph, if you ever want to hear a deaf girl scream for you, just call me. Why can't we? Okay, wait, time out. Why can't we hear a deaf girl scream for I was super stoked when a friend of mine recently texted asking, hey, do you want to interview Dr. Drew? Uh, hell yeah. Is that even a question? Drew and his daughter, Paulina, have recently released a book that they wrote together. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, and I think it's a great guide for teens or parents of teens in your life. It's partially about sex, of course, but it focuses on TCB, trust, compassion, and boundaries, as a sort of rule of thumb for life. And so they apply these principles to some of the more difficult parts of growing up. I had so much fun chatting with them. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Yeah, I wouldn't say as a teen I was coming to him with questions. Really? But, the guy yeah, no. everyone's coming to questions with, and you're That's not. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, Doesn't everybody else is finding out from my dad. I don't want to find out from my dad. It was, you know, it, it, it's complicated in that, you know, when I was in the, this is not in the book, but when I was in the third grade, uh, my mom on the way to figure skating practice looked at me and was like, when you lose your virginity, your father's going to broadcast it on the radio. Oh, my God. Are you and, serious? Yeah. And I internalized that hard. Oh. And so I just kind of kept everything a secret, which was kind of like my mode de resistance as a child. Yeah, um, secretiveness is sort of your go to. It is. Let's like, be fair. Yeah. So now I just overshare uh, constantly. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't we all? Right. It's like, yeah. the mode of you're right. 20th you're century. making up. She's making up for last time. Yes, exactly. 
do you feel like you were kind of closed off? Was it just the public thing? Because I feel like everybody just hates their parents for a brief period yeah, of time. Of course. Of course. Now, it doesn't have to be brief, even. It can be, can be quite sustained. Yeah. yeah. It can be quite sustained. It's normal. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think like that moment in the third grade, that sort of innocuous comment that my mom made kind of imprinted in this like very profound way, and that I understood that if I messed up, people were watching and kind of mm. waiting for me to kind of trip up, which when I started writing about my eating disorder kind of manifested in this weird way of like, Dr. Drew's daughter has an eating disorder. How did he not know? You know, oh. and it's so, so like both my worst fear was realized and not realized and that it wasn't about my virginity. It was about the actual secret that I was holding, <laughs> um, which I, I taught me a lot about, you know, the media scape one and two, just about the importance of transparency when it comes to difficult topics, because the more we talk about it, the less stigmatized it becomes. Yeah, absolutely. And so you guys had a bunch of new conversations in writing the book. Did you have uh, any major disagreements or discoveries uh, with each other about maybe your perspectives or what kind of advice or approach you want to take to sex? We, we specifically looked at each other and went, geez, there's information everywhere about sex education. Well, we're not, I'm not a sex educator yeah, and too. We, and we want to do something broader and talk about relationships and healthy relationships, how to navigate relationships. So, so sex is one little piece of the, of the deal we get into here. We get into bullying and, and gender identity and we get into everything where relationships are involved. But go ahead, Blaine. Well, sorry. also I was going to say, Lacey, your book was one of the books that yeah. I used as a resource throughout this entire process because oh, I felt like- awesome. It was such a brilliant sex education tool. And I was like, okay, this exists. Like, what can we do that would exactly. aid this yep. primary yep. resource? Yeah, it definitely feels like an expansion of the type of approach that I was going for into a lot of really difficult areas. And I think you guys handled it super well. Uh, I do want to talk to you about that kind of stuff uh, later in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, I, I mean, your relationship's just so interesting. You know, I think a lot of people have a very difficult relationship with their parents when it comes to these topics. So writing a book is just, I don't know, it piques the curiosity. Well, good. That, you know? That's good. If it inspires, that's so, so much the better. But but to your to go roll back to your question, I mean, we don't have the exact same point of view. And no. that's a good thing. We like I liked that. I learned a lot about how Paulina looks at things. And, I, and it enhanced my point of view on things. It's, it's usually clinical, biological from my perspective, and, and you go a little more ideological. And I just ah. go, no, 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 no. This is just, this is just my experience. This is just it. I have to stand by it. Yeah. Well, you're very different generations too. For yeah. sure. And also like ideologically, like I'm a lot more left in, in my thinking and ideologically, my dad sees himself as a centrist, but also veers more right than I do. But I well, think being a centrist is more, right. it is more right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think what has been interesting is, you know, moving through discourse in a way that doesn't splinter into sort of like politics or sort of bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it can be a, you can disagree with someone and still have a conversation with them. Uh, this it's, and, and I thought that's exactly right. And I thought to myself that we are modeling what the world should be doing right now. Big time. It's like, yeah. I feel like that's the main message we need to get out with yes. the sex conversation now because yes. it's become so yeah. hostile. Um, so Drew, I mean, 
I, I have to ask you, you've been involved in conversations about sex in the public eye for decades. I mean, you truly are an icon. And now here you are writing this book with your daughter in 2021. How have the questions that you were getting and, you know, the issues that we were addressing back then in the 80s different from today? Yeah, com- completely different. It's why, it's why I needed Paulina in on this. It's completely different. I mean, then you got to understand something. The, the reason I got involved in uh, that whole project of uh, talking about that material on the radio was one, Anthony Fauci was, I was deep in the AIDS epidemic. I was treating AIDS patients hand over fist. And one Anthony Fauci was like, you got to get out there and you got to educate. You got to teach people. We got to change their behavior. And I took that very seriously and had an opportunity to go on the radio. And it was really that that got me involved. And then as my career progressed, the addiction piece became clear to me. The trauma piece became clear to me, both uh, what I was interacting with on the radio and what I was seeing clinically, like deeply. And so the the phenomenon back then was primarily confusion because they had no there's no internet there's no resource there's no place they mm-hmm. could go uh, for the, the basics just biology but more importantly uh, trauma and how that then played out in, in our interpersonal lives that that by by mid 90s became the predominant theme mm. so before that it was it was just about body stuff it really was yeah it was just it was h it was stds and basic functioning you know you gotta remember we were we were fighting we were fighting it's uh, it's silly now we were fighting to get people to understand the morning after pill is not an abortion pill it works just like your regular pill i mean that was my that's the campaign i was on and you and you know, HIV is, and AIDS is not caused by the antivirals. They save your life. You, I mean, these kinds of basic things. They, you don't realize how hard we had to fight for that. So those were the those were the fronts I was fighting. Right, right. And so it's in a way we've kind of moved from like understanding our physical bodies. Although I would say a lot of those conversations you were having back then are still happening now. Mm-hmm. But we are talking a lot more about the emotional aspects of sex and. Um, like you said, the trauma piece, which I also want to get into, but I'm wondering yeah. how, you know, social media, that was pre-internet. It, yep. it feels like a totally different world. I mean, I'm a lot younger yeah. than you, obviously, but I, I can't imagine how dramatic that shift much must be for people who really understood the world before the internet. The one thing I will tell you is that it, it taught me about history. I, I, I found myself speaking about this lately, which is I always thought I was never interested in history when I was growing up, and I and I got more and more interested as time went on. Thank God, because I learned you know a lot about perspective taking as a result, and not making the same mistakes twice and things. But mm. I always thought history was a nice smooth arc over time. You know, things evolve slowly. No, everybody, history lurches forward, and then we adjust. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Adam and I, you know, I still do a podcast with Adam. We started looking at like rock bands in 1967. Well, actually it really became clear to me. I was, I was t- rewatching some Mad Men and, ah, they, yes. and there was that. episodes from 1965 in the, in the series. And then 1967, it's a totally different world. Mm. And Don and his whole team just adopted it. Just, just move forward with it. And it didn't stay in 1965. All of a sudden it was 1968. And that was a different world, same people participating in it and trying to kind of adapt and embrace and figure it out. That's what, that's the way things move forward. 
Yeah, it feels like a little bit of whiplash almost like we, oh, we're still sure. kind of gaining our yeah. bearings. Oh my God. How do you how do you think social I mean, what are the main effects that social media I think has had on the conversation or understanding of sexuality? Well, I, I probably I'll let you. Yeah, this, but, I would but say the Instagram that, and body image is massive. Well, right, oh, there's yeah, all that yeah. new and, stuff. And then porn, we have no idea the full impact of that yet. So. Yeah, but I would say, um, you know, I think it facilitates a lot of really brilliant sex educators uh, to Ooh, create like platforms for themselves. Like yeah, <laughs> like there's so many brilliant sex educators that I follow on Instagram who you know have built built platforms for themselves in a way that I feel like wouldn't have been facilitated otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you know there's a negative you know one in three girls develops an eating disorder because of instagram you know and it's like well you know you weigh it and you're like well i don't know good platform children with eating disorders like ooh. but did you guys um, see they're making like a instagram for kids what now? they they wanted that for a long time i, I don't know if that's going to be possible after this after all the legislation stuff we'll see we'll see what happens i know it's just but, terrifying but, but by the way a highly regulated instagram for kids okay you know what I mean? Yeah. If it's properly regulated, I mean, right, right. Properly regulated being yeah. the keywords there. Yeah. I just, I guess, I don't have any trust in the platform. I don't either. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't. I don't either. That, that's what worries me. I'm with you, Lacey. Yeah, 100%. absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you, Pauline. I think it, it's obvious. I'm one of those people. You know, it's yeah. obviously been fabulous for people to have platforms to have conversations to put information in one place and reach a ton of people really fast. Mm-hmm. But there, there's definitely some problems with it. The porn thing really worries me too. There's no doubt. I and mean, the full spectrum of what that's going to be, we don't even know yet. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, certainly, certainly the addictive piece, uh, you know, I see that all the time and that's a very specific thing, but that that's, that's worrisome enough. Uh, we've been dealing with that for quite some time, but really how it shapes people's understanding of sexuality and gender and relationships and, men and women and how they treat each other. It's just, it's just profound. And uh, I, 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 I've seen more of it affecting the young males. It's more evident to me, but there's yes. no doubt that it's affecting everybody. Those men have relationships with other people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 And, my and early people... 20 told my early 20s showed me that men are affected by porn. I was like, what are you doing, man? Yeah. Yeah. They, it's they, just everywhere. They... It's hard to avoid. And they watch it when they're really young now. Like yeah. nine, nine to eleven is age of exposure, and that yeah, and who knows exactly. what that does to people. I mean, what if you're horrified by it and traumatized and can never get over it? I think it could be traumatizing. It, I think it is. Have stuff out there. I think it is. That's right. And so, what does that do? We don't know. And and I I also think that it it um I don't know. I think males retreat into it from reality, hmm. and, I, and I think that that I, you know I've been Paul and I were talking yesterday about some of the concerns about not dating and not being in person, you know, sort of whatever word you want to use courtship, or I don't know what word we use, but just the process of being with humans in space over time is something we don't do anymore. And that really needs to happen. It's extremely important, both in terms of skill and assessment and emotional development and personal development, self-development. But if you're retreating into that stuff, it's, that's the opposite of of development. Yeah, we we like to think of the body as an instrument. And, you know, you have to get used to being in bodily space with somebody else in order to figure out how to tune in with somebody else. Mm. Um, But also, you know, it's been extremely hard because of COVID, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that this book is a good sort of guide for reintroducing oneself back into socializing in a certain way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very, I mean, there's so many good things about the book. Let, let's talk about it. Um, a few bits and pieces that stood out to me that I that are that are different from a lot of the books that I've read. For starters, you guys have a whole chapter about substances and substance mm-hmm. abuse, drugs, alcohol, um, intoxication, and sex while intoxicated. When I was in college, which admittedly was like 10 years ago now, binge drinking was a huge part of how people approach sex um, uh-huh. and part of the sexual experiences. Do you think that college students in America maybe have a little bit of a problem with alcohol? Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, obviously I'm writing this with my dad, you know, the addiction guy. And I'm like, okay, I've I've used substances before. Like, how can I help someone navigate substances in a way that is mindful and so, sort of taking a harm reduction standpoint. So so for me, it was important to have at least, you know, something that would help guide them through, you know, navigating substances for the first time mindfully. I've had concerns for literally decades about alcohol on college campuses, because if you look at every measurable adverse health outcome, you always find alcohol. And mm-hmm. I, I had difficulty raising awareness about this issue because the the Me Too movement pushed back and said, you're blaming alcohol for the raping. No, 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 no I'm not. I'm just mm-hmm. saying that if you want to improve health outcomes on health campuses, whether it's fighting or accidents or STDs or unwanted pregnancies or sexual assaults, unwanted sexual contact, you always find alcohol. And to normalize binge alcohol the way the college administrations have is to me just extremely concerning. It's it's okay to say, hey, it's going to happen like Paulina did, but not endorse it as, hey, that's just what they're going to do their freshman year, because that is guaranteeing horrible health outcomes. Do you so think they should the, try to stop it? They should at least acknowledge that it's 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 common, but it shouldn't be normative. It should be it should be edu- you want to educate about adverse outcomes. There's your there's your number one culprit, um, number one. And, and then number two, I, I went around for decades and I asked college students this question from about 1998 forward. If hooking up, as you said, the sexual culture around uh, on college campuses involves alcohol, if it's so great, if this culture you've got for your sexual landscape is so cool, why do you have to be so fucked up to do it? Mm. Why do you have to be wasted to do it? Yes, and, great uh, and, and in every room, in every college, in every state, the, the males and the females answered that question completely differently. And I mean completely. And so, and it was always the same. And so I just wanted them to hear each other answer the question in public because they would, because they have their experience. Do you guys have any sense of what the difference would be? Um, men, liquid courage. An- their anxiety. They're, they don't want rejection. They're fearful. They're going to hurt themselves, hurt somebody else. They're, they're just full of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so they treat, the, they, the alcohol makes it possible to do this difficult thing. And for women, it was, wasn't it to convince them to do it? To medicate away their feelings. Make sure I didn't feel anything when I did this. Oh my God. Yeah, it's right. Really it's, sad. A, it's really sad. That's right. That's what I would say. I would say, look, that is sad. There it is. The, everyone just, th- this is in every room I go to. I hear this. Don't we need to maybe try something different or at least acknowledge this this yes. experience that people are having and figure out a better way to do this so people aren't literally medicating their authentic experiences with alcohol? It's too much. But, uh, you know, it's really I, awful. I, I, I know. Well, Lacey, you need to pick up this crucible. You're, you're the, you're the, <laughs> 
You're the one. I'm, I'm tired. I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to be listening to You're next in line. You're the chosen one. I, I did a pretty extensive tour, several hundred schools, and I did talk about alcohol. But, you know, my understanding of how much of a role it played in it didn't dawn on me until I had really spent a lot of time with the students because I was never a really big drinker. But then I realized exactly what you're saying, right? These kids are getting super fucked up. They're, they're binge drinking. They're blacking out mm-hmm. um, because they're so freaked out yep. about mm-hmm. sex. Yep. And, you know, one of the questions that I go around and around about is how, how do you, how do you fix that? <laughs> how I mean, do you help uh, that, them they, to feel I, more comfortable? Well, so, so I would ask that question in every room also. And um, the room would go silent. This happened a thousand times to me. So, so the room goes silent. I go, well, how could I, if I had, I said, if I had infinity powers, how could I create a social landscape that would be, so you could be your authentic self? What would that look like? Mm-hmm. Silence, because no one's willing to say individually that they're not up for the cookup thing. They just, it, it, somehow it's uh, disdainful <laughs> to admit mm. that this thing isn't working for you. So silence. And then in every room, in every theater I was in, about about a third of the way in. So, so many, many theaters I spoke in were 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 um, you know there was a really? floor theater and and then a balcony, and about a third of the way up, every room, third of the way up uh, in the room, a woman would raise her hand, always a female, and she would go, "I wish a guy would just spend time talking to me." Mm-hmm. Every room. And I would go, what? Talking? What does that have to do with sex? I'm confused. What are you talking about? Talking is something. So I'd make a big deal out of that. And I'd go, yes, that's what we're talking about is is spending time and space, two human beings, Mm -hmm. assessing each other, learning about each other. I mean, it's such a healthy impulse to just spend time, spending time conversing with each other. That's Mm -hmm. how you develop your your sensibilities. That's how your emotional landscape is developed. And, and And then I would sort of encourage the young males by bringing up some literature that I, I don't even know how deep the literature is anymore, that you could, that the way in, in females, the way that the men and female in the, in the functional MRI studies have a disconnect between arousal and drive, arousal and appetite. So in other words, a female brain can have arousal without appetite of drive. The male brain does not do that. Arousal and drive are always connected. And so I would tell the young males, I go, you want to know how to activate drive? Intimate conversation. Turns out drive is initiated by intimate conversation. So learn that, gentlemen. And how about we do more of that? Yeah, the emotional safety component, I think, is what the talking gets people to. I just wonder, like, why why is it so scary to do that? Why is it so scary mm. to – is it just because we kind of, like, have this narrative about hookup culture where, you know, you're kind of a prude if you don't just – have sex on the first night or you're not manly enough you know I just I don't understand what narrative is being bought into so deeply that they can't just date like people have for hundreds of years I um I was teaching at LIM college in 2019 and while we were writing this book I would you know just like ask questions during class because I had access to the demographic that I was writing about and one of my students raised her hand and was like catch a body, move on. Once it's, once you've hooked up, it's already over. And essentially what, what was being communicated to me was that sex was sort of the first threshold for initiating interest. And then you could facilitate conversation. And so it's sort of this 
this flip-flop of it's like <laughs> I, I don't know who said this but like kids are giving blowjobs like handshakes you know like <laughs> oh, it's just it's just the the sort of um I, I pro- it's probably has to do with the proliferation of porn. It probably has to do with, you know, so many other things, but. I, I saw it happen in real time. And I can tell you what the, the, the room would tell me, which was we're supposed to, th- that society makes men and women different. Therefore, society is going to decide that women are just going to be just like men. And we're going to do it just like men. And if we, oh. if we admit that we're different, we're flawed. We're right. flawed. Are you talking deeply about, flawed. When are you talking about? This was like in the nineties and two thousands. Mm-hmm. And, and you're, if you don't, if you can't do this exactly now. And, my, and so my pushback was, why do we have the 17 year old male as the standard of what's good? Yeah. Why is that yeah. the standard? <laughs> why is that what you want to be? I don't know about you, but that's the exact opposite of what we should be aiming for. Yeah. 17 year old yeah. male. Really? That told you that should be in a cage. That shouldn't, yeah. be, shouldn't be admired and emulated. And so that's to me. I watched it happen, and they were they were afraid to a scared shitless to admit that it was a problem, wasn't working for them. Mm, it's interesting that like that equality feminism mm-hmm. message went toward the male yeah. experience. Yes, like, why? it could have also. Well, I mean, I think we all know why. <laughs> yeah, well, no, why? Have, if it had gone toward like if women's experience had been centered, right? Maybe we wouldn't have had you know, this chaos that we're in now, like if the the focus was more on building a connection with someone mm-hmm. and not just kind of getting off immediately. Isn't I that where wonder. we, why are we doing, what is the problem with us? Why are we not doing that? I really well, mean that. Why we should be, that should be our focus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think we tend to center men's experiences of sex above women's and think of men as sexual you know i'm thinking about even just how porn is made like it's all usually from the perspective of male pleasure right it's Mm -hmm. it's never really centering female pleasure and if it is it usually costs money yeah i was gonna say there is feminist porn but it's usually not on Pornhub. no it's it's not not, it's not doesn't have the same level of consumption and they're trying to make money and so that's it but it's i you know i knew stormy daniel before you all knew stormy daniels and uh, and she used to direct and produce a lot of porn in addition to performing them. And I was interviewing her one time and she said, you know, I create a lot of pornography and I create it for men and women. And I know ex- I know I know my audience. And she goes, here's here's what men want. They want to see two people having sex. Here's what women want. They want to know why these two people like each other so much that they want to have sex. <laughs> that, that she, so you have, she says, I, so I put the narrative in when I'm creating stuff for women. And if it's for men, I leave the narrative out because it has it's completely irrelevant. Yeah, I think it took a while for me to just kind of own that, that exactly what you're saying for myself when I was in my 20s, like to own that. Yeah, I want to have some kind of a connection and relationship with someone first. And that doesn't make me a prude or a bad feminist. Paulina was I think we're around the same age. Was your experience like that, too? Or Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I was in college, <laughs> I, you know, had that was my first encounter with feminism. And so it was like very like I've I've been a bad feminist. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you know, you're like, moving I through it. I shouldn't want and... to just have sex a lot. Otherwise, I'm right. repressed. You know, there's some I'm repressed. There's something wrong with me. Like there I, it is I again. To... You're flawed if you can't be a 17 year old male. Think about that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, just moving through like the hookup culture, like it's so ingrained in the this culture of just every school in this country. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, it's it's a function of like looking at your peers and like being like, well, they're doing it. Yeah. So why can't I kind of thing? Um, but it wasn't only until after college that I was like, that was shitty sex. All of it was bad. Like, not only was it like spiritually bankrupt, but it also just like point blank poor poor performance on everybody's part you know what I mean <laughs> we all failed this challenge <laughs> we <so>. all <laughs> failed I used to describe the sex I had in college as uh people tripping and falling inside of me oh god, oh my god. so that's you thing. know that's the base level that I was working with and so yeah. moving beyond college I was like okay I'm out of that environment like what is working and that's when I really started dating for the first time but I really didn't start dating until like 24. And 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 I'm and I what I've I've been showing I've been saying to the, you know everyone and I've seen this over and over again, is because you're not de- developing the usual milestones and skills and breaking and forming relationships and dating and assessing, the young males who already need a lot of work on that, start getting obsessed and getting weird when they're mm. mid 20s, um, because they don't have the skill set. So the story we would hear all the time was. Hi, you know, I'm I'm Joe. I'm 25. I met the girl of my dreams. I was 22, but we dated. But no, she wasn't ready for it yet. She wasn't ready. <laughs> wasn't she? Didn't, didn't didn't go for it. So I became we became friends, and I've been waxing her car every Sunday ever since. And oh. I do her, you know, I do her homework for her. And and it's been now three years, and now it's time. I'm like now it's time. I was like, what do you what do you mean now it's time? <laughs> well, now she needs. I've been putting in this time, and now it's time for her to step up and be my boyfriend. Let's go. And it's like that that is full on simple stalking behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And because they don't know how to deal. They've not got the experience and the and the the milestones that they're supposed to develop along the way. A lot of people don't have experience with rejection, whether that be, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. There's like always like millennials always had participation awards and that's why they can't handle rejection. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay. Uh, but like for me, like I grew up as a competitive figure skater. So I'm like very attuned to criticism. I'm like, yes, thank you. Uh-huh. And I'll move on, uh-huh. you know? And so like, but that's an exceptional experience. Sure. Um, my fiance intolerant of any sort of criticism of any sort. Really? Oh yeah. Really no, has a hard a time problem. with that's it. Not, that's that. I put that in the same category as needing to date more because the people need to be able to listen to the world and adopt and update your priors and things. It's very important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Is it just well, that yeah. lack of real world experience again, the the lack of experience with re- rejection? Or I almost feel like people are really scared to, like maybe they're more scared than they used to be. They're scared because it's like asking somebody to walk who's never walked before. It's mm, scary to walk, but you, haven't it, done it. but you have to actually build the muscles and you have to do it and you have to, or riding a bike or skiing, you have to do it. It's experiential learning. Mm-hmm. And just to put it, just I'm just afraid of rejection is is too small a, 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 an assessment. Mm-hmm. You have to actually do the do in Get order rejected. to develop the skill. Yes. And it, well, but not just the rejection, but if you don't have the skill to even, of course it's scary. You don't know what you're doing. It's like, it's, it's like throwing somebody into a tennis match or something that's never picked up a racket. It's like, it's scary. I don't know what I'm doing it. Yeah. Where do I start? How do I, I don't want to look foolish. What do I do here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I teach comedy writing to high schoolers and risk is like the main thing that I tout. I'm like, you got to take a risk, like take a leap of faith. Risk comes in all forms, right? And I think, you know, in an improv setting, it's like, okay, you're taking a risk with your scene partner and your scene partner will be there to to catch you when you fall kind of thing. And, you know, I think it's important to assess risk at any given point, whether that's, you know, 
can I leave this job? Can I ask that girl out? Can I, you know, walk across the street? Um, and, you know, looking at what safety nets are in place, like, oh, if I get rejected, like I can call my best friend and talk about it, or I can call my mom and cry, you know? Right. Um, and so even if there is inherent risk, I think there's always the opportunity to take a leap of faith. Um, it's like Julia Cameron uh, of The Artist Way. She says, jump and the net will appear. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, rejection sucks. <laughs> uh. It's painful. And I think having the experience of being rejected makes you more compassionate when you have to dole out rejection to someone else, right? It's like, I've, I know what it feels like to be dumped. So I'm not going to just send a text message. Mm -hmm. I'm going to meet that person face to face and say, listen, we just aren't compatible or, you know, I'm not interested anymore or whatever it is. Like mm -hmm. give it, being honest with people is an act of compassion. Mm. Yeah. We can't um, even do that anymore. We have to ghost everyone. Just stop mm -hmm. talking. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's that like is the most basic, yeah the most basic level of communication is just it's gone it's really interesting mm -hmm. though what you're saying about risk and rejection it's so true um i want to talk about another part of the book too um one of the recurring themes your little acronym that i love tcb trust compassion boundaries um is wonderful it's i think is a really nice easy way to convey what makes a healthy relationship but in the book i notice you also have kind of a quiet a in there for accountability. You guys mm. wrote a chapter that is basically for young people who have violated someone. Um, mm -hmm. For those who haven't read it yet, there are subsections like I crossed a line with my boyfriend, girlfriend. I pressured someone to do something they didn't want to. I I'm curious for you guys, what was it like writing advice for someone that, who that might was be- hard. That was hard. Yeah, it was really, really hard. Really it hard. seems like it would be hard. I mean, these are people that might've done something illegal, right? Yeah, yeah, and it would have been easy for us to go off with their heads, you know. Forget we don't want them. Screw them, you know. <laughs> but I thought we, we just can't. You can't do that because people are not perfect. People make mistakes, and maybe we can aid in healing and resurrection and and uh, you know accountability. Exactly, accountability well, is the word. I love that. I love the silent A. And also, I mean, these are young people, right? They're at the beginning of their lives. Like you know, cancer culture is obviously prevalent, but I think there needs to be more of a transformative justice element in how we deal with people when they make mistakes, right? And understanding mm -hmm. that they're human. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so structural in the United States. Like the, the incarceration system itself is like a symptom of how we view people, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, if you do something wrong, you deserve to be put in a, a cell and be fed gruel. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily lead to rehabilitation at, at, at any length, you know? Absolutely. And so it was, it was exciting and also very daunting to write this chapter because it's like, we don't have very many conversations about what to do when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, other than, you know, as you were saying, dad off with their heads. Yeah. Yeah, we have like a very black and white view of people's goodness. People are either like mm. angels or monsters. And I feel like that definitely feeds into the cancel culture stuff. But it also makes mm -hmm. it really hard to rehabilitate, like you're saying, Paulina. Um, how, you know, if you guys could sort of shift a little bit the direction of, of how we think about abusers and predators um, beyond, yes, they're human. I mean, what would you want to change? How should we... I guess, how do we deal with this population in a way that will actually reduce harm? 
let, let me just frame it by saying, you know, this, those of us that work in mental health have our face pressed to the mirror on this issue all the time, yeah, yeah. which is you have to close the door and be empathic to somebody who may have done some horrible stuff. Mm-hmm. And you have to be, you have to adopt, not adopt, but, but get involved in their point of view to bring them into a healthier place. And it's hard. It is really hard. What what the way I sort of uh, manage it myself was uh, look, uh, you I can I can deeply empathize with you, uh, and I can sit there with the door shut and 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 share with you. But if you have broken the law, that's it's off both of our hands now. Mm-hmm. Now you must now it's, it's it's a legal matter, and you you don't avoid it. You must take take the the consequence of that and by the same token if it has not become a legal matter you also have to be able to face up and make amends and at some point in some fashion and making amends is not apologizing making amends is cleaning up your side of the street making things right whatever that means and i think to abused people abuse people right and thinking about always that's this- why that's why i'm sorry that's why it's always so t- that's what i'm doing in the room with these people that's why it's what's so difficult it's i'm i'm hearing about their horrible traumas often that happened to them and now they're a perpetrator so right but i think understanding that hurt people hurt people um and and seeing it as the cycle of abuse is also helpful in terms of you know this doesn't just happen out of thin air you know there's a lead up but but you but I think I think into your point about changing things, if we could get people to understand that if you if you cross some line, you must there are consequences. Period. End of story. Yeah. But that you can get you can heal these things and not do this stuff. You can you can there are things to be done for you so you don't end up mm. uh, not always but oftentimes you don't end up uh, doing bad things to people. Yeah, like a, a healing and then a like a path to redemption, I guess, is what yeah. you're mm. describing, a way to actually become a better person. Is that what you yeah. mean? Yes. Yeah. I, I see it all the time in recovery from alcoholic addicts do horrible shit. Oh, yeah. And, and and I see them become amazing people who clean it up. They make amends for what they've done. Hmm. It, so you said it's not just apologizing. Can you give some other examples? Because I'm not really familiar with this. So amends is not an apology. People are really confused about that. And it's why you don't do any amends until you've been sober a long time. Because an apology for an alcoholic, because in your in your disease of addiction, you're very narcissistic. So it's mm. like, I want to apologize to you so you'll forgive me so I'll right. feel better. They got to be sober like a year at least before they give an amends. And the amends needs to be, um, it it's often includes things like, um, I broke a law. I need to go take the consequence for that. Mm. Uh, or I hurt somebody and I need to go face up to it. They don't know that it was me. Uh, now, now it's, see, that's why they say in amends, you don't want to hurt other people and maybe not hurt yourself. So how you manage that amends sometimes is difficult. But as much as possible, bear up to what you've done and take the consequence. Mm-hmm. Clean it up and, and make it right. See if you can make it right. So That's would you say piece. if you broke the law, you would recommend people like turning themselves in? That they go to jail for a while. Sometimes that happens. I'm not saying you – I'm no, I'm not making specific – Lacey asked, you know, what kinds of things. Okay. I'm just, I, I, I'm just I'm saying, asking. I'm saying don't hurt yourself. <laughs> don't hurt other people. Don't mm-hmm. do that. But if it, if it needs to be that you have to put yourself in situations where to clean it up, you know, it, it can be really – challenging and but the important thing is to try to figure out a way to to make it right you know what do you need to do to make it right for that individual you harmed 
Do you think that outside of the therapy room, maybe that other people in their life or society as a whole owes predators and abusers empathy? Uh, it's hard. That's a hard question. Yeah, hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I maybe leave the empathy to the professionals because sure. they, they do need empathy, but I, but I, but I understand the anger and the intolerance and all that stuff too. I think more understanding than empathy understanding. is really what we need. We need yeah, understanding and 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 uh, in understanding, it's like, hey man, get treatment. Go get treatment before if, you hurt somebody, hurt yourself. That's what I say to alcoholics all the time. Before you kill somebody, go get treatment. If you kill somebody, that's on you. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure they put you in prison. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's on you then. It's never too late to make a change. Mm-hmm. That's I think maybe what I would want to you know highlight is like no matter what you've done, you can always get help. Let let me put a little caveat on that which is that some people can't be treated and can't be changed, but it is incumbent upon my profession ah. to figure that out. Right? Mm. That there are some people that just will not change and they need to be, they, they can be dealt with though. They can they can be contained and they can have a better life than if they are out perpetrating, trust me. Right, they, right. They're usually not happy about what they're doing. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. Um, of course, in the book, you guys aren't just talking about perpetrators. You're talking about the victims of some of uh, this stuff. You talk a lot about trauma. Um, and I really like how you made the distinction between big T trauma and little t trauma. What's your experience been like that? As a teenager, obviously, going through just life is little t traumatizing, right? We like right. it's it's embarrassing and weird and uncomfortable. And I'm sure there's like tons of teenagers who are like, that's traumatic, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we really like the idea of kind of distinct distinguishing between the two types of, um, trauma because we don't want people to be misusing that word. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to, I'm flipping through the book to find, um, well, it's when, it's when it affects it, when big T trauma is when you, the probability of going on being is in question and that if it's repeated affects brain biology and brain development mm. profoundly. Mm. Uh, a great book called Body Keeps the Score. Oh, yeah. The best. Classic. Uh, that, uh, you know, talks about how it gets frozen into our systems, our, our autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. And, and, and little traumas are nasty and awful and, you know, and they have to be dealt with and managed and we have all kinds of reactions to them. But big T traumas need treatment. Here's what I was looking for. Think of it this way. In big T trauma, trust, compassion, and boundaries have vaporized and are replaced with terror, chaos, being, and fear of danger. Mm. In little T trauma, you'll find TCB dissolves into tears, confusion, and betrayal. You wrote that. I wrote that. Fine, <laughs> yeah. girl. Love it. I know, because I know I'm not that good. I'm not that good. That is... Unexpected wholesome moment in the trauma discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I get right because I feel like people throw the term trauma around a lot. And when I got started in sex ed stuff, I was mostly working with sexual violence and domestic violence survivors. Mm. And it almost felt like it made a mockery of what they were going through. I I get it. And I'm glad that we're talking about trauma these days. But you're right. We it it, to, to... to overly uh, be overly lax with how, how we use the word trauma also becomes easily bleeds into over laxity on victim too. Right, exactly. Right, and you said people underuse it as well. You know, in my world, again, you know, people come into treatment and uh, do you have any childhood trauma? No, hundred <laughs> percent of people start there. No, I don't. Right, what right. are you talking about? <laughs> okay, did somebody? What age did you start having sex? Twelve. 
<laughs> it's like, okay, well, that's traumatic. Okay. And uh, how about your parents? Did they ever, did they ever hit you? Well, I was disciplined like anybody else was. And, and this is, this was every patient every day. So, you know, the denial around trauma is quite ah, profound. Interesting. Too. So it's like yeah. in the clinical context, people don't think of it as trauma, but the way some, maybe it's just like more of the feminist community online is discussing Correct. I it. think, I think it's, I think it's, it's what's, you know, if you're out there, think in the thinking community about this, it's tossed around a lot. If you're out there in the, you know, average public that comes into a treatment center, they don't know, they really don't know about it. Very interesting. Yeah. It's so easy to get into a bubble, I think, with this mm. stuff and to feel like what you experience online is the real world. And it's often just not. Well, yeah. maybe it may be moving that way, right? I mean, keep an eye on it. That's for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you about, you know, years of experience that go back into the 80s. And so maybe it's, you know, predominantly changing now. All right, my dears, that's a wrap. If you'd like to read, it doesn't have to be awkward. You can find it wherever books are sold. Thanks for stopping by. I'll see you next time.